Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey folks, Eddie Trunk here, and it's time for another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, which is new every Thursday, wherever you get your podcast, Podcast One, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the podcast platforms. Thanks for tuning in. Greatly appreciated. Thank you for subscribing and listening each and every week. As I mentioned to you each and every week, the podcasts you hear on the Eddie Trunk Podcast, the interviews, I should say, originate and took place on my SiriusXM radio show. That show is Trunk Nation, heard live Monday through Friday in the U.S. and Canada on Sirius XM Channel 106 between 2 and 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Check me out on volume here on the podcast. You're only getting a tiny taste of what I do on a daily basis on the daily show on Sirius XM Trunk Nation. Also, you got a sixth show on Sirius XM, which is on Mondays, 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern on Channel 39, and the syndicated terrestrial FM show heard on 30 or more stations across America each and every weekend. Be sure to follow on social media at Eddie Trunk, especially Twitter, Instagram, fan page on Facebook, and EddieTrunk.com. And I am also on Cameo if you are interested. You got a book on their website, which is cameo.com. You can no longer book cameos from me via Apple platforms. All right. This week, Andy Beersack, lead singer from the band Black Veil Brides. Andy is a great dude, tells some great stories. He's a great conversationalist, very smart guy, has built a great career with his band Black Veil Brides, as well as a solo career now, and also doing a bit of acting. This interview with Andy took place a couple months ago on my Sirius XM radio show. At the time, Black Veil Brides had just released a brand new single and video. Black Veil Brides also, as Andy is first to admit in this interview, a bit of a polarizing band where they have a very rabid, loyal fan base that loves them. But as Andy said, there's also a segment of people that just don't like them or don't get them for whatever reason. So we'll get into all of that. And a lot more with Andy from Black Veil Brides, my guest on this week's Eddie Trunk podcast. I don't think I got anything else to tell you this week. <laughs> I think that kind of covers it. I mean, that's the nuts and bolts of it. So you know what? Why don't we just get to the interview? It's coming up. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey folks, are you paying out of your own pocket for gear you need to do your job? All kinds of departments across the nation, all those good folks, police, fire, EMS, medical workers on the front lines, even military units. Uh, you deal with constrained budgets, outdated gear, but there's still a job to do and you need the right gear to do it. Hunting for military first responder discounts has historically required going from one website to another creating multiple account logins just to make purchases and jumping through various hoops to verify your service. Don't you wish there was just one, one place where you could visit 
that had a carefully crafted selection of deals for military first responders in one spot? Well, folks, we got that answer for you because it is the place to go, and that place is no doubt about it what I'm about to tell you about, and that is GovX.com. GovX works directly with brands to negotiate the best price possible because you deserve the gear you need at the prices you've earned. Plus, you can trust that the gear you're ordering is 100% authentic direct from the manufacturers. Big general retailers, they don't care about you and your sacrifices as long as you're clicking on the add to the cart button. Not GovX. Got a huge collection of gear and apparel from popular brands all in one convenient location. GovX honors your service and gives back to your communities. So if you're an American of service, a current or former member of the military, firefighters, frontline medical or law enforcement communities, or the emergency medical communities, join GovX for free and enjoy a community that honors and gives back to patriots like you. And if you got a military or a first responder background, you visit GovX.com, you sign up for free for instant access to tons of deals and a community that honors your service. And check this out. Use the promo code TRUNK15, T-R-U-N-K-15, to get $15 off your first order of $50 or more. That's an amazing deal. Just use my code TRUNK, T-R-U-N-K, 15, govx.com, G-O-V-X dot com. From the team that brought you the big podcast with Shaq, it's the Big Shot Bob Pod with the biggest shooter in NBA history, Robert Ori. To Ori for three. Oh, unbelievable. This guy is off the charts. The Big Shot Bob Pod. Yeah, of course we're talking about hoops. Charles Oakley. We played him in the finals when we was the Rockets, and I dunked on Oak, and I kind of flexed on like, ah! Oh. And, uh, and Oak didn't do anything. I went down the court like this. <laughs> Ooh, I just man. missed a punch to the jaw in, boy. <laughs> Subscribe now and get new episodes of the Big Shot Bob Pod every week on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, LiveByLive.com, and everywhere you get your favorite podcasts. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey folks, Eddie Trunk here with you, and let's get into my conversation with Andy Beersack of Black Veil Brides on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. Enjoy. Andy, how the hell you been, man? Eddie, I'm doing well. How you doing? Good. It's been far. I don't have we talked or have I seen you since TMS? Uh I can't remember if I did your show after that, if I came in studio and did it after that. It was around the same era of my life. But yeah, it's been a long time, man. It's been far too long. And, you know, when I when I saw the press release come out about the stream and, uh, you know, your PR person is a good friend of mine, Kevin. And I said, mm -hmm. uh, I said, let's get have Andy call in. It's been too long since I talked to him. And I was scrolling through. I thought for sure I had your number. I was going to drop you a text and say hello. And I didn't. I was surprised I didn't because I thought I did. But, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, I've been thinking about you and I've been seeing some of the things you're doing and I wanted to reach out and uh check in with you and see how things are in your world. How are you holding up? Doing really well, man. I mean, yeah, and you, and you mentioned Kevin. The truth of the matter is, and this is maybe uh, divulging too much, but towards the end of our time on Universal, the reality of us being a rock band and then being a major label sort of hit a point where we were no longer really doing any publicity for anything. We had a record that kind of came and went. It did really well. It was actually our highest charting record, but we were not given really anything in terms of publicity or an opportunity to promote the records. And so now we're on a new label and we're able to bring Kevin back into the fold. And it just, it's so much more comfortable and feels like uh, we're just really excited. Things are going really well right now. Well, talk a little bit uh, for my audience and, and in all honesty, Andy, my audience uh, definitely skews towards the more, you know, classic hard rock metal world, but uh, I've always respected what you guys have done. And among the younger bands out there, I think you're one of the one of the bands that's certainly carrying that torch and and bringing a lot of different influences. I know for you personally, I mean you you love '70s stuff, you love '80s stuff, you love all sorts of hybrids of rock and metal. 
But if you can, in a nutshell, fill my audience in on the arc of Black Veil Brides, because it's interesting. You started out indie, you went to the big major label deal, and now it sounds like you're back in the indie world. Is that accurate? Yeah, basically what happened was, you know, for me growing up, and we've talked about this before, I talked about it on the show, uh, that metal show, to me it was Kiss. That was the introduction to everything. And, and like many people, that really shaped the arc of, and and for me, I, I talk about it in the, I'm putting out a book in, in a few weeks, and a lot of it is about like growing up in the 90s like I did. Kiss had already passed their prime. And I grew up watching Paul and Gene talking honestly in a way about their career. They still had the vibrato and they still had the kind of boastfulness, but there was a little bit of uh, self-deprecating humor and everything. And, and so all of that kind of like, I would sit and watch these VHS tapes and they were my superheroes and I just wanted to do whatever they did. And so that really started it for me. And then from there I got into, you know, kind of working backwards, getting into Wasp and Motley. And uh, my dad was heavily into Aerosmith and kind of all the classics, ACDC and all the bands that, you know, when you're, when you're learning your rock history, the bands that, that you kind of should know, um, and that built it for me. And then I got later into punk rock and kind of my idea was I wanted to start a band that felt like a combination of the pageantry and the fun of, of the older era music with kind of the attitude and, and edge of the later, more punk rock oriented stuff. And then, you know, uh, we signed to, sorry, go ahead. No, well, just before you go through the, the label lineage and the arc of the band, I, I just going back to kiss for a second. I, I think it's really interesting because well, how old are you? Like 30 late twenties? Uh, I, t- I turned 30 in a few weeks. Okay, so you, you're talking about being born, what, in 1990? Yes, sir. So you discovered KISS and the history of the original KISS. That's fascinating through the lens you discovered it. And would I be accurate in saying then that you, because by the time the reunion happened and they were done with the reunion, you were 10, did you ever see the original band play? I did. That was my first concert. Uh, was the Psycho Circus tour was my first concert. So I got like to I got to experience. Yeah, I got to experience. Essentially, their reunion was the beginning for me. I mean, the first record that I had was Revenge. I got that on cassette, and it had been out for a few years when I got it. But that was the first record that I ever owned. Uh, that was like a new album that was purchased because that was my dad's old albums, and I got. Uh, Revenge on cassette, and that was like the holy grail for me to have this Kiss record that was like quote unquote the newest Kiss record. And then shortly after that, I remember Halloween night watching them on on Unplugged on MTV, and it just changed my whole life. And then it was basically a countdown to all of a sudden now they're back in makeup. Oh my God, there's all these photos and posters and the original lineups back together. And I got to know about that era of the band. And then I'm watching that Matt Pinfield, the second coming VHS every single day. And right. you know, it was just, it was such a, it was such an important formative thing for me that, you know, I don't think people necessarily understand like uh, the impact that Kiss has had overall in rock is important, but from a growing up as an isolated kid, like when I told kids at school in 1997, 98, that my favorite band was Kiss, they always thought I was talking about the local radio station that played pop songs. Cause it was like kiss one Oh seven. Like there was no, <laughs> right. they had no frame of reference. And so it was as isolating as, you know, a lot of people talk about kiss as the band that was the party songs and the party band and carefree and everything else. But the truth of the matter is, uh, hold on. Let me get inside here. The truth of the matter is that by and large, for someone who was so isolated and felt so kind of lonely as a kid, they were, they were like my ticket to the world, you know? Well, it's funny you say that because obviously I'm I'm much older than you. I'm 56. So I discovered Kiss in the original incarnation at the time I got their first, I got Destroyer as the first record. At the time, the new album was Rock and Roll Over. But the funny thing about that, and I got that when I was in junior high school. The funny thing for me, Andy, was by the time I got to high school, when I would mention Kiss in high school, People would want to physically beat the shit out of me <laughs> because you, you, I don't know if you have a point of reference on this being as young as you are and knowing the entire arc, but the, the, there was a I went to high school, the years I was in high school, 79, 80, 81, 82, you could not find a band that was more hated and more, and you would be more mocked for liking at that time than kiss. 
because think about it. It was Dynasty. It was Unmasked. It was The Elder. And oh, it was yeah. thought of as a kiddie <laughs> band. And people wanted – and I was defiant about being a fan still. But people – if I wasn't a big kid, I would have routinely gotten my ass beat for having the balls to wear a Kiss shirt. That's how bad it was at one point in Kiss history, which blows a lot of people's minds that are younger when I tell them that. But that was a thing. It's crazy. Well, look, I don't, I don't mean to be to have the pretense or say that we're anything in the in the realm of Kiss, but the reality is, my band has been treated, or the fans of my band have been treated much the same. If you tweet out anything about my band or put the name in there, there's going to be several people that are so angry that you've even said the name. We were once on the cover of <laughs> Kerrang magazine. We were on the cover of Kerrang magazine that just said the most hated band in the universe, and it was just the way that it went early in the band's career. And this is one another reason that I feel such a, a closeness with Kiss is that in a small way, obviously not on the scale of them, but our career arc has mimicked them so much in terms of the audience and the fan base being so fervent and caring so deeply and, you know, dressing up in the makeup. And, and there's just this kind of people don't understand why we're still around or people still care about the band. You know what I mean? No matter how many records we put out, people still say, oh, they're done. And then this record sells better than the previous. It's just the reality of fan bases like that. There's something about having something that's tangible for you that means something to you that almost there's a badge of honor that when you go to school in the t-shirt, people don't, they think it's stupid and it's a defiant move. I think it's more rock and roll to have something like that than to agree with everybody else at the, the kind of altar that we have to stand at ceremony to of the bands that everyone agrees are great. Yeah. But what do you think that comes from in the case of your band? Because I remember when you guys first came on the scene, like it was about 10 years ago. And do you think a lot of that, because the one thing that uh, clearly Kiss has had way more success, we know that, but the one thing you do share with Kiss as a band is you have, you do have a very rabid, passionate fan base that loves you. But as you said, you do have the, the people that love to hate you and the common thread between the two bands is that theatrical? I mean, you guys had a very strong look and a theatrical image. You you still do have a look and a, and a vibe, which you know I always thought was cool in the bands that I love. But do you think that that's the common thread? Do you think that's what causes that polarizing uh, fan base when you have a really strong look and and uh, image? In some cases, but there's also plenty of bands that dress up like it's Halloween every day that don't, people don't bat an eyelid at. You know, I think it's also a personality thing. I learned it truly from Gene and Paul in the way that when we first started, uh, admittedly, I was extremely verbose. I mean, I think there was, a, there was something, it was years ago, it was like Rock Sound or something, and I had said that our new record was better than anything Led Zeppelin had ever done. Not because I necessarily thought it but because I knew it would make everybody talk about it. And that's something that I learned from them. And that also oh, yeah. galvanizes the audience because it's, they know that at the end of the day, you believe, because here's the truth of the matter, whether I think that the record is better than Led Zeppelin or not, as far as the grand scope of the world is inconsequential. But to me, on a personal level, I like everything that I've done more than Led Zeppelin because it's me. And I think it's the same for you or anybody else. You can't like someone else's art or the thing they create at the same level that you appreciate yours. Otherwise, you're not making valid art or what you should be doing because you should love the thing you're doing. And that's the thing that, that galvanized the audience. And it's also something that makes people hate you. And I think that's a common thread with Kiss. They have always said, be your own biggest fan you know, fly your own flag, do what you want to do. You don't have to, as I said, stand at ceremony for those that came before you. You can create your own path. And that, for some reason, it makes a lot of people very excited and, and makes them want to be a part of something. But equally, it makes people very, very angry. And I think there's plenty of examples of that in the history of rock. It's not about wearing eyeliner. It's about the attitude and the, the idea that you really don't give a shit. When I go out at the Golden Gods a number of years ago and yell at everybody in the audience, that is a moment that for our fan base connects because they know that they get yelled at at school. They know that people are mean to them. And I genuinely am standing up for that, not just for them, but for myself. And it's not pandering. I think a lot of bands try to sell you on an idea. People try to sell loneliness to lonely people, or they try to sell partying to party people. It has to be about who you genuinely are. And that will make people hate you in equal parts to like you. So, so talking about the career, the, the arc of Black Veil Brides now, 10 years into the, the career with your band, 
you, you, you mentioned the, the big label and having the deal with Universal, which it sounds like went south. But, but take us through that because, you know, this is the other thing that whether people like your band or not, you can't deny you put the work in. I mean, you were a kid from Ohio that went and moved to LA for the, for the dream and, uh, chased it and worked at it and you're smart about it and you're good at what you do. But you, you know, you started with the indie record. You got the big deal. Uh, take us through that arc, if you will. And, uh, you know, and how, how, I mean, because if you think about it, you, your your band and what you did are one of the few bands that I talked to on this show that was part of and and evolved and came up in a time where much of the traditional trappings of the music industry had sort of gone away. You you were a band that came out in the era of social media still. You could utilize digital platforms and things like that. Most of the bands I talk to on this show started 25, 30, 40, 50 years ago. The, the, the roots of how they started and how they marketed themselves don't apply now. They didn't have those tools that you have now. So talk about how the whole thing started out for you and how you, you evolved in terms of going through the business. Well, I mean, the truth is that when you first started in a band in this era, you're, you're in a position where there's, there's no, as you said, there's no promise of what there used to be. You know, there's back in the day, I joke about it. And it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's almost like when you look at it from the trajectory of bands, there was there was only a limited number of, of bands that were around and got signed. And if you had a record deal, you had money, you had a chance, you had tour support, you had all this stuff, just by virtue of the fact that you had like an interesting hairdo and a couple of catchy songs. At this point, when I entered in, when I was in high school, there was no promise of any of that. In fact, there was almost a guarantee that it wouldn't happen. So I wound up dropping out of high school. We got signed to a small independent label based in Ohio. And off the back of our fan base and they're suddenly, you know, we toured regionally toured in vans, toured in cars. Our first tour we ever did, we did it in two separate cars. It was so small that we had to like sleep with our feet sticking out the window in the winter and wrap them in socks. But we did it. We, we grinded, we went to every little venue we could. We tried to grow it organically in that old school way. And through that, we built this fan base. And when we first started on a level of acceptance, when it came to um, the powers that be within the industry, I can vividly remember that someone who, we now have had, you know, bands open for us, a booking agent who's a very big booking agent. We were trying to find a booking agent. His response was, it's not 1985. No one's going to want anything like this. And they passed. We had managers come along and tell us that there was nothing to manage. It wasn't until we found our current team and my manager, Blasco, who plays bass in Ozzy Osbourne and manages at Zach Wilde. I've been with him since I was now 17 years old. He believed in us. Uh, Dina Lapolt, who was our attorney at the time, who represented Motley Crue, she believed in us. There was like a bunch of people that kind of got behind us and they pushed us, but it was mostly the fan base that put us in the position for people to pay attention. And so we, we basically ended up in a situation where before our first record came out on that independent label, we were taking meetings at major labels because they were hearing about us. And in merchandise sales, we were outselling some of these major label artists without even having our record out yet off the back of this kind of traditional touring and building an audience. And that's in many ways, I relate to um, Twisted Sister's story in a lot of ways and Dee Snyder's story in a lot of ways because of that, because that's a situation where they had built an audience before anybody really wanted to pay attention. And they, we couldn't really get any attention outside of that. So we wound up moving to Universal. We made a number of records there. Basically, the idea was they knew that we were a band that had a fan base, but they didn't know what to do with us. And I, I look, it's not I, I sometimes say that trying to sell a heavy metal record in this era is like walking into the Apple store and trying to sell somebody a cassette player. It's not, you know what I mean? Like there, it's not, there's not a market for it on a large scale to these people. They don't understand how important hard rock and heavy metal is to so many people still. And they don't look past the surface. They see Drake's record sales and Taylor Swift's record sales. And that's the basis for everything. They don't look beyond that and see that there's people like yourself and there's your audience and all the people who love and appreciate and are dedicated to hard rock music uh, that are still there and buying the records and, and attending the shows. So we kind of always had an uphill battle there, but they were good to us, you know, and we were selling enough records that it made sense to keep us around, but it was never a situation where they really understood us. I think at the beginning they thought maybe they could, they could have us be something like a hard rock one direction or something. You know what I mean? Like the rock and roll equivalent where it's like cute guys. And, and that was just never really our thing because you know, I was yelling curse words at people <laughs> and rolling around the stage and throwing stuff at people and everything else. We wanted to be a rock and roll band and we didn't want to fit into that box. So eventually the relationship just kind of dissolved. 
And now, where does that bring you now? Uh, you've got a new record coming out, and a great song, by the way, and video, Scarlet Cross, that I really, that was the driver. I tell people all the time, for me, you can have all the publicists, managers, agents, whatever, reach out, but uh, it's got to be good, and i got to like it, and that's what moves me more than anything, to be inspired to want to talk to someone. I thought the song and the video were great. Tell us about what's going on now. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate that. And, and you know, for us, like, we we had gone through some changes in the band and we were kind of in a place where we, we had, we, we wanted to kind of start over again. And one of the best things that we've had in our career is a relationship with Ash Albertson, who uh, owns Sumerian records. And uh, he directed the film that I was in a number of years ago called American Satan. And he's just been a champion for the band throughout our career. And from the very beginning, you know, like I said, we had Blasco, we had Dina and, and Ash was involved. And, and it's kind of like, we had always been in a situation where we couldn't sign to his label, but his label has done extremely well. Um, asking Alexandria, he's got some Ashing Pumpkins. He's got tons of artists that are uh, done have done extremely well in their career. And so it just seemed like the right fit and that he's given us the freedom to kind of make the record that we want to make. And it's just, uh, it's, it's kind of a rebirth for the band. And, and I think that that shows in the music. I think we've, we've grown as songwriters and we kind of know where we want to be and we know how we want the band to sound and, uh, it's, it's felt like a natural evolution. And it's just so nice to hear that um, people like yourself care about this, this new music coming out, because I think that that's also something that is a misconception that people say in my, in my field, in my part of the rock world, people say, oh, nobody cares about the young bands. And that's not true. People do care. It's just that a lot of young bands don't put in the time. And so if you put in the time and the effort and make something great, I think people will pay attention. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I t sometimes I get pigeonholed unfairly and wrongly, in my opinion, as a guy, you know, that only know, likes old music or only classic bands. Maybe it's because of my age. I don't know. But the, f the fact of the matter is, of course, I love all that stuff. But I love new music. I follow it. I support it still. I care about it. But it's got to be good. And when it's good, then you I get as excited about it as anything. And, and that is always the number one thing. And, and I tell people all the time, I, you know, I have a lot of my audience that most of my audience is around my age and they'll, they'll commiserate. Ah, oh, there's nothing good anymore. And I always push back. I go, no, there's plenty of good stuff. Unfortunately, it's a little harder to find it because now anybody can put music out. It used to be if you presented somebody with a CD or an album or a cassette, they had already gone through 15 gates just to get to that point. Now anyone can do that. So it's a completely flooded marketplace. So finding it and it standing out and the relationship you have with it is a little different, no doubt. But if you take the time to find it, uh, there's good stuff out there. I'm incredibly encouraged about a lot of newer, younger bands. I just worry whether enough people uh, out there, uh, you know, care enough to seek it out, especially older people like me, when it comes to younger bands, I think a lot of them get complacent and, you know, expected to come on MTV or have a full page ad in their local yeah. newspaper or something. And it's just not like that anymore. You got to just the, the upside of that though, is of course, if you want to find it, it's a click away. So it, there's pros and cons to everything, but I'm really encouraged about where things are going with new younger rock bands. And uh, I'm optimistic about the future. Yeah. I mean, I think from a musical perspective, the other thing you got to remember is if the end game is to become a, a multimillionaire and have all the riches and spoils of being a traditional rock star, it's unlikely. It's just not, it's not out there right now, but if the end game is to make really great rock and roll music and to be passionate about it and make things that matter on that level, then you can do that every day of the week. You just have to have the understanding that, it's not the way it used to be. And I think that in many ways, that kind of weeds out some of the bullshit. I think that you had every era before the one that my band entered into and many others, a lot of it was predicated on the idea that as soon as you got that record deal, now you're rich and famous and nothing matters. But for many of the bands, but you know, bands that open for us or whatever else, these are bands that they have very little uh, financial support in any capacity. And, and to the degree that we, for many years, have just had to make our own way. Now, we've been fortunate to be able to build a career and sustain ourselves. But nobody, I mean, obviously, during the pandemic right now, nobody is, is uh, able to, to get by in the same way that you were. But the truth of the matter is, when you're looking at an era of rock music where the bands were not promised the sky, they entered into it for what you might say the right reasons. And I think that you're going to find a lot more legitimate art for that for that fact alone now again like you said it's a lot harder to find that stuff but it exists out there it's not i think that there is you're right there's a misconception that people say things that are these blanket statements um 
And I always, I liken it to, I'm a big Cincinnati Bengals fan, right? And they're a terrible franchise and pretty much always have been my whole life. Well, let's think of, uh, you're, you're a Giants fan, right? So let's oh, think of hardcore. the worst season, yeah. worst season of the Giants. Think of the worst lineup you ever had, worst coaching staff, worst season. And then I'll think of the worst season the Bengals had. Now let's imagine this hypothetical game where the two of them are playing and it's an awful football game. And that's the only game we ever watch is just these two terrible franchises. And then we turn the game off and go, man, nobody can play football anymore. And it's just, it's ridiculous because you didn't flip over and see the other good teams play on that same Sunday. You just watched your two terrible teams. If you look around, you will find things. If you put a blindfold over your eyes, you're not going to find it. Yeah, no doubt. Andy, I just found you on Twitter and, and started following you because I couldn't, I got confused because I know you are now using two different names. You have Andy Black and, of course, your real name, Andy Beersack. Explain the dual name thing to me in the audience, if you will. Uh, well, so when uh, about 2014, I had decided that I wanted to make just a different type of record uh, and do a solo record, just, a, you know, different types of music that I enjoyed. But basically, the, the kind of motivating factor there was that I have been a fan of so many bands where the singer or somebody in the band got a wild hair up their ass to make a different type of music and then essentially ruined the band. And I thought I didn't want to do that to this band. I wanted to make something that was a little bit different. I'm also, in addition to being a, a hard rock fan, I'm also a fan of David Bowie and Bruce Springsteen and more pop-oriented kind of singer-songwriter stuff. So I wanted to do a record like that. And uh, I did. And so I, I called myself Andy Black for that. But now it's kind of this confusing thing where I've got like 75 different names out there. So I go by basically <laughs> all of them now at this point. I was wondering if you're worried about it causing confusion in the social media marketplace, but I'm sure the people that know and care about you are, are fully in tune with, with the, the two different worlds. Uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, I mean, thing it probably when, does confuse people, but I can't go back at this point. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I can only think of one artist. Like when you started, like this is, this is like just an aside thing, but I, I always find this interesting. So when you started out, uh, you know, to, to down this road as a musician and, you know, chasing the dream, so to speak at that time, like you, you decided to use your real name, Andy Beersack, but did you consider, cause a lot of bands that have very theatrical looks and stuff, you know, they come up with some sort of other name. Did you consider a stage name? Uh, when I was a little kid, I did. But then as I got older, I, I decided that my name was unique and kind of weird in its own right. I didn't know anybody else with that last name. So, And actually, my first garage band, I called it Beer Sack, a la like Danzig or Bon Jovi or Van Halen. So uh, I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I Eventually, I just decided this is this is my name, so I'll stick with this. And uh, so far, it's, you know, it's a bizarre name, but it's paid off. It actually means, it's a colloquial term for a can of beer it's like an old world term for a can of beer in german so every time we go to germany and go through passport control the people that are looking <laughs> at my passport they snicker at me and then they go do you know what this means and i go yeah yeah and that's every single time now yeah but a can of beer is pretty metal that you can roll with that that's that's nothing right? wrong with that right yeah you, you know i i get asked because my last name is unusual i can't tell you how many people think trunk is a radio name or a fake name or a stage name. And it's not, it's my real last name because, but it's highly unusual. And people have said to me, and I say all the time, like if I was going to come up with a radio name or a fake name, why the hell would it be trunk? Like that's not what you, I'd be like, you know, Eddie Roberts with you or something like that. Uh, but my attitude about that when I started out in radio decades ago was, because I remember a program director saying, are you just going to use your real name on the air? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, do you want to come up with, you know, Eddie Stevens or <laughs> Eddie Michaels? And I was like, no, no, I, I want to use my real name because my logic at the time, Andy, because I was, you know, I was made fun of for liking this music and I was an outcast as a kid too. But I was like, damn it. If I ever reach the point where I'm actually known like people can hear me and know me. I want every single one of those motherfuckers that made fun of me to know that it's me. <laughs> you know? I want to make yeah, sure they know it's the same Eddie that. Trunk yeah. that you wanted to beat up in high school for wearing a kiss shirt. Son of a bitch, I'm on TV now. I don't want there to be any confusion. So yeah, I'm using my real name. <laughs> I completely, I completely understand that. Yeah, I mean, I think, and also like really close to my family. My dad and I have been like best friends since I was a little kid, and he introduced me to all this music and. I'm an only child, and I just thought, you know, I might as well keep the name going and give it some. Uh, when I got made fun of and called Ballsack when I was a kid, I figured maybe I'll turn it into something cool. 
<laughs> hey, so you got a stream coming. We are we all know in this shitty year it has been streaming mania. The the evolution of streaming has been interesting. Everything from people in their pajamas in their bedroom on an iPhone to I mean, uh, you know, month or so ago, my friend Corey Taylor renting out the forum with fire and women swinging from the rafters. You know, we've seen it all. Code Orange doing some really interesting artsy things. Some people just uh, pre-recording them live, live, ticketed, how much they cost. Uh, there's, There's a myriad of streams out there going on. You've done one or two already, I believe, and you have another one coming up. Talk about embracing this, and uh, hopefully it's not the new normal, but it's a necessity right now, and it's a good way to connect with fans and make some money when you can't tour. So talk about the Black Veil Brides approach to streaming and what you have coming up. Well, I try to pride myself on being like understanding of, of the kind of tides in the industry and being able to keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening. But I have to admit that the day that our our headline tour got postponed or we were told it wasn't going to happen. I started getting contacted by companies saying, Hey, we're doing this streaming thing. It's going to be the new thing. And admittedly I went, no, that's not going to be a thing. And then about a week later I realized, Oh shit, that is the way it's going to go. So we had to kind of like backtrack. I kind of wish that we would have started right away and been on the, the cusp of like the kind of boom. But the reality is it's just, you know, if you want to play music, and, and you want to be able to, to at least on a level of, of connecting with your audience, but also just from a, a purely, um, you know, not going crazy level, it's important to be able to have some outlet. If you're a musician and this is what you do, you need to be able to do that in some capacity. And so um, it started out as, as that. And then it's also now become an opportunity for us to be able to go through the catalog. The first one we did, we rented out the Whiskey A Go-Go and played our first record in its entirety, 10 years uh, on the anniversary of us playing on our first headline tour in clubs. So that was a lot of fun. That was a, a purely live stream, you know, um, camera to camera, cutting around live. Uh, this time around, we decided that we wanted to do a, a quote, kind of a greatest hit set of stuff that was, you know, like the singles from every record. We've got coming up on six albums now, so there's a lot of material um, and so for this one, we wanted it to be a bit more cinematic, more, a little bit more interesting. And so, um, we're airing this one as showings as opposed to being live everywhere at the same time. So there's, there's a showing that's available in different time zones. Cause that's another thing that we were asked a lot about from our fan base the first time around was the number of people who were in, you know, Asia or Australia or other, other time zones had difficulty watching the last one because it was all live. So, um, we had seen Nick Cave and some other artists do these show times and staggered them out. And we thought that that might be a good idea. So we're trying it out this time. I think every time you do one of these, it's a trial and error thing. And you try to work out the kinks and see what you can do better next time. Audio wise, we think this time around, we got it a little bit better in terms of of nailing kind of the way it sounds. You know, there's still some stuff with live audio. The drums are a little too hot. I hit some flat notes, you know, stuff like that. But you know, that's the beauty of it is that if you go see a show, yeah, exactly. If you go see a show, that's what it is. So we, we made sure, you know, I've, I've seen a few of these, and this is not to, to disparage anybody else, but everything is so perfect, and you can hear where those changes have been made in post-production. Now, with us, it. we really just wanted it to sound as real as possible. And, you know, I watched it with uh, my wife, Julia. We were sitting and watching, and she's an amazing singer, much better than I am. And so I wanted to kind of gauge. I was like, look, um, we're li- well, here's, here's kind of the first idea of what we're going to do, and here's what it might sound like. And, and, she's, and I go, I'm really worried because, you know, in some ways I'm hitting bum notes or I'm singing the wrong lyrics. And she's like, no, this is amazing. Like, this is the way it should go. And so I felt like, okay, yeah, let's let's just keep it in warts and all. And, and as much as I love Kiss Alive and the other records, I think that there's something even more fun about you know that this is the way it really is. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. It's a huge peeve of mine. I want live bands to be on stage playing 100% live when I'm in the audience. And when I see a stream or a live performance, warts and all, man, that's what makes the fun of live a live experience. That's what sets the bar, whether you had a good night or a bad night. So I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, one of the criticisms I've heard from some of my audience about some of the really highly produced streams is exactly that. It feels like at the end of the day, instead of like sitting in a concert, which is what we all are are missing it kind of feels like you're watching a movie or a music video and that is you know that's kind of not uh fulfilling that need of that fully live feeling concert so i'm with you all the way on that and you know i don't know if you heard about this but i had a story the other day i forget what artist it was that was doing this oh it was todd rundgren 
who is doing something because, you know, one of the problems with streaming, because honestly, obviously there's a financial component to this too. I remember when streaming first started back in March, I was openly talking on the air saying, Hey, I wonder if artists will ever start ticketing these. Now it's an anomaly if they aren't being ticketed. So everybody's charging something for them. But the challenge is you kind of can only do it one and done for a while. Rundgren announced the other day he's going to do this thing where he's going to do a streaming tour where he's going to somehow geo-block out the states. So he's going to do like 20 dates where you can only, okay, tonight's for Ohio, tomorrow's for Florida. Like that's that's a fascinating evolution in all of this too, just I guess trying to re-monetize the same stream. But then again, if you open it to the whole country and everybody buys it, I don't really know. I think everybody's just trying to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I think there has been some success with that. And then I've also seen uh, some other bands that are doing, uh, trying to do tours with the streams and you just see diminishing returns because you know, it's, it's not really, it it isn't a live show. So I think what you got to do is you have to try to really put everything you can into making them interesting and exciting and fun and feel legit in the moments that you're doing them. And then for, at least for us, I don't look ahead to, to the next one until we've kind of gotten through this one and we've been spacing them out. But from a financial level, I mean, look, the, the truth is, and it's not fun to talk about, but you know, and I, I've actually gotten some criticism for talking about this because people say, I don't owe an entertainer anything. And the truth is that's, that's not true. If you buy anything or you want any kind of service, whether it's entertainment or otherwise, there's going to be a cost because there's a cost to make it. And we've tried to really be a band that's kept the ticket prices low because we've been able to do that just based on our, our margins. But renting out a venue for an entire day is an expense. We, we're happy to be able to provide jobs for our crew that have been out of work uh, for months and months on these days that we're doing it. Then the uh, rehearsal costs, everything else. So it's not a woe is me, oh, my God, it's so expensive thing. But the reality is charging at least a nominal fee is a requirement to have a decent show because if you want – any kind of show or lighting or, you know, fire, whatever it is, those are expenses in a lot of bands right now. Uh, we're no one's immune to the fact that without any incoming money, it's very hard to have outgoing money. So you have to be able to cover yourself in that way. And it's not sexy to talk about, and it's not particularly rock and roll to talk about, but on a practical level, you got to be able to have at least some level of return on your expenses because that's the way you can do the next one. Even if you just break even, which I think is, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I think most fans, our intention is just to be able to break even so that we can do another one and not go in the hole of doing it. Yeah, but look, we all know this is a business. Everybody's got rent to pay. Everybody's got bills. It's been a tough time, especially for artists that make the bulk of their money touring. I think at a reasonable price point, nobody really has an issue with that. Uh, you would hope they wouldn't. I think, you know, there's exceptions to that. But I think the idea of when streaming started, I think initially nobody expected this to go on for as long as it went on. So I think initially artists were looking at it as just a way to stay connected to their fan base, do something fun and put it out there. And then all of a sudden the, the, this, as this goes on and the, there's no touring for a long period of time, it's like, okay, now we need to, all, it's not going to hurt, especially for bands at a club theater level. Hey, we, we could, you know, we could use the income and the artists that I talk to, because obviously nobody really discloses the their numbers or figures, and I get that. But the people I've talked to privately who are friends tell me that the the uh, just as much money is made in the quote unquote VIP extras and the merch sold through it as in the regular base ticket. So now you're seeing just like in a real live show the very the various tiers that you can buy based on what you as a fan want to drop in on. Yeah, I mean, it's also it's it's an opportunity to connect. We're as soon as I get off the phone with you, we're starting a week of the VIP meet and greets that we're doing that we usually do on the road. And I can't tell you, uh, I've been doing this like virtual book tour over the last couple of days. I can't tell you how I didn't. It's not that you don't anticipate it, but just the idea of being able to connect with people again in this very isolated time to talk to rock fans and to talk about what have you been listening to and all that kind of stuff that you normally would able to do that has been actually uh, pretty incredible. So it, obviously we're very appreciative that people spend the money and take the time, but on a personal level, it's been a positive situation for us to be able to, to connect with people again, because that's so much of what rock and roll is. It's about this kind of kinship that you feel with people and the connection of this music that we all love and has meant so much to us. So for that to live in a bubble, it really isn't that much fun. So it's nice to be able to to talk to people again and talk rock and, and even though you're not performing for an audience, knowing that people are watching you around the world perform, like all of those things are important to 
this world that we exist in and this genre that's so important to each one of us. Yeah, for the most part, I've said this on the air a lot recently. I mean, streaming is basically become pay-per-views. I mean, that's what they are. I mean, it's just being delivered through the Internet versus over a cable box in your house. I mean, that the, whether they're canned or whether they're live live or whatever, it's just a different delivery mechanism for people to uh, put stuff out. Now, I notice, Andy, I only got a couple minutes here left, uh, but I notice you guys have dates like actual real live dates starting uh, scheduled to start in May in Australia. What I mean, I know Australia, New Zealand, I know that our area of the world has been, you know, relatively okay with the pandemic. Are you optimistic that those shows happen? Uh, I was and some days I am, some days I'm not. You know, the biggest issue right now is us getting there. Um, because they're, everything we've heard is that they're preparing to have shows in that part of the world by the spring, at least to some level. Now, the issue is that for us as Americans with our passports, we're not really allowed to go a whole lot of places right now. And also, there is a 10 to 15 day mandatory quarantine when you get to these places. So from a financial level, you know, we want to go do download this summer and we have every intention of doing it. But you then look at it and go, well, it's generally you do those festivals in a chunk where you're doing Rock and Ring, Rock and Park, download all that stuff. If you're only going there to do one show and you have to isolate for 15 days beforehand and after, what is the financial strain that those fans money. get? So, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's it's from what I'll say is it's currently our intention to do everything that's on the slate. Uh, other information that is beyond our control can come in and change that. And that's just the way it's frustrating to have to say, but that's just the way things are right now. You know, there are, there are extenuating circumstances that we can't change. And as much as we like to be able to say, yes, we're definitely going to go do it the promoter could easily call us tomorrow and say, Hey boys, it's not going to happen. So um, our intention is to go there and do that. And we're, we're, that's, you know, you wake up in the morning and go, that's going to happen and we're going to love it. And it's going to be great. We get to go back on the road and play live music. And uh, sometimes the day ends and you hear that that might not be the case. So optimistically, yes, realistically, I'm not sure. Blackvalebrides.net is where you go for that information. What I'm looking at, and it's it's Australia, and then as you mentioned, I'm surprised download is still up for June, which is kind of early. Most of the festival promoters I'm talking to, at least here, are thinking the back end of the, of next year before that's going to be able to happen. But you know, everybody's taking a chance to see what happens, and and we'll see how it plays out. You've got Poland on here, and then you actually have one U.S. date listed, Sacramento, which is also a festival aftershock in October of next year. Let's hope that. Uh, absolutely is able to happen and, and fingers crossed on all of this. Uh, listen, man, it's great to talk to you just in closing the new record. And you mentioned a book tour. You have a book out now. What do you want to plug? Uh, my book comes out on December 15th uh, on rare bird literature. It's called, they don't need to understand. And it's just stories from the first 30 years of my life growing up in Ohio, trying to become a rock star life on the road, crazy shit, you know, being a crazy ass, all that stuff. And, and just kind of learning who I was through, starting as a teenager on the road. Uh, so that's out on December 15th, everywhere books are sold. Uh, I do, uh, for anybody who's a football fan, I, I do uh, the free game show for the Cincinnati Bengals. If you're in the Cincinnati area uh, before the games on 1027 WBN, I have a record or I, uh, sorry, I have uh, what else we got. We got the Scarlet Cross is out there. We probably have another single coming out at the beginning of the year. The fan of tomorrow is the record that'll be out probably first quarter of 2021. And uh, we've got the live stream coming up at the end of the week on December uh, 11th, and it's pretty exciting for us. So that's that's my plug fest. Uh, thank you very much for allowing <laughs> me to do that. Go to blackvalebrides.net, information on that and how you can sign up for the stream and keep up with the many things that Andy has going on. It's great to catch up with you, man. It's been too long. Get my number off Kevin and, and uh, drop me a text. Stay in touch. You know, we do, uh, I do a daily rock talk show here. So we're always having different debates and we're having people make lists and countdowns. So I've got a, a group of people I'm always in touch with that I reach out to, to generate lists and give commentary and jump in on the show for a couple minutes. So love to put you in the hopper. If you're up for that when, especially now with nothing going on, it's a good diversion. I so I would be love cool that, to man. do. I, I will, and it's it's good to talk to you again. Thanks for letting me be on the show, and thanks for supporting us so much. It really means a lot. Yeah, for sure. And you're still in LA, right? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm still here. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you said you sound not so convinced wanting to stay there, but you're that's where you're living. I've right? never been convinced. I'm just here. Uh, both my <laughs> wife and I have we've never loved it, but we're here, so it is what it is. Free well, in normal, people, so you know, in, in normal times, uh, for a, a year and a half. 
or, or more, I was coming there every month and doing my show from the patio at the Rainbow with a bunch of great guests and having a lot of fun and, and with a live audience. And that will resume post-pandemic. So knowing you're still there, I'll reach out to you to have you come down because we have a good time down there when those things can happen again. So we'll keep you posted. I would love to, man. There's and just think, next time you're at Rainbow, when you leave the the bathroom, there's a big poster. I saw. In my face to creep you out I there, saw so. your poster, American <laughs> Satan. That's, that's how uh, I creep everybody out at the Rainbow. <laughs> it's like I know Andy's a nice guy. What is the Satan thing? I'm creeped out coming out of the bathroom. I just took a leak. I gotta see his face there. <laughs> but it's awesome, man. Oh, man. I gotta check that movie out as well. Congrats on that. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right, Eddie. Take thanks care. for having me on the show, man. Anytime. Good luck with the stream and uh, look forward to the record. Well, Andy's a great guy to talk to. Great dude. Always appreciate some time with him. And I thank him for joining me on this week's podcast. New single and video sounds really good as well from Black Veil Brides. All right. That's going to do it for this week's Eddie Trunk podcast. Remember, new episode every Thursday. Wherever you get your podcast, Podcast One, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Be sure to follow on social media at Eddie Trunk, especially Twitter and Instagram. And my thanks to Katie Irizarry. She is the producer of the Eddie Trunk podcast. And uh, we thank her. And remember, listen to me every day on Sirius XM volume channel 106, doing Trunk Nation, nothing but rock talk, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time live daily with nightly replays 10 to midnight Eastern and available anytime you want on the Sirius XM app. You guys have yourselves a great week. See you next Thursday for a new, another new episode. What do we have next week? John 5. Get ready for that. Also coming up, we've been talking to Cesar, the CEO of Gibson Guitars, with some interesting insights about that company. That's all stuff coming up on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Thanks. Have a good week, everybody. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.